This is the Let's Grab Coffee podcast, and I'm your host, George Khalifa. Let's maybe take a quick step back here, because I'm currently based out of Chicago. I know you, and I was just talking to your sister, Kiari, you were both in Chicago as well, so you have some roots. Um, curious to know, how was that starting point like? Uh, great. You know, actually, I came as an undergrad to Knox College, which wasn't exactly Chicago, um, you know, a few hours south in small town Galesburg, Illinois. And uh, and that was a phenomenal experience. I couldn't have asked for anything better for uh, coming into a liberal arts education and getting to explore so many different topics. And um, and Chicago um, is the first point when you're looking for a job. Uh, Anderson Consulting at the time was doing campus recruiting and I got selected to come and work in the big city of Chicago. So I, I started my career in um, in Chicago at the time when the Bulls were a big deal. So I had the opportunity to experience that. Exactly. Yeah, it was a great experience indeed. That's awesome. Including it's, the wind chill factor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the the windy city, right? Well, it's actually snowing right now. I kid you not. Um, yeah. I mean, we're we're late April here. But oh I, I'm sure you don't miss that part of Chicago. <laughs> I do not miss that part, indeed. It's 32 degrees here, so it's you know it's a little warm. It's a little bit better. Um, so so you you know you you, you go through the arts program. Curious because like usually the the track for entrepreneurs is always different, and that's what always intrigues me. Now you went through the consulting track. I think you went through like the one of the big four as as Accenture as an example. Curious, like how was that like for you as a beginning point of your career? Was that always something you wanted to start with? Yeah, you know, I think that um, uh, essentially when you're coming out of liberal arts, it's it's a great opportunity to go into consulting because you get you have a breadth of experience and no laser necessarily focus where you're only done engineering or only done, you know, mathematics. Right. Mm -hmm. And so by doing a consulting role, I got to do what that background and experience allowed me to do, which is to meet lots of people, be curious, learn about technology, learn about businesses, learn about growth, scale, global expansion. And, and somewhere in there, I, I was also able to find my footing. And I really enjoyed consulting because there was continual challenges. You're, you're constantly on the go, you're constantly on the move, and you're constantly challenging your clients to think differently, but your client is also teaching you how to center and and focus as well while you're trying to do that. So it was a great fit for me. It was probably different for different people, but it was the right fit for me. And it certainly gave me a lot of exposure globally. Yeah. And in, in terms of, uh, I like what you said in terms of finding your right footing, because you're you're serving different clients, usually in different subsectors, unless you're like focused on one industry. To your point, you can maybe more easily figure out what you're more interested or passionate about. And what was that for you? Like, was there a kind of an industry that you're like, oh, my, this, this really, this is it. Like, this burns a fire for me, you know? You know, it wasn't an industry. Um, I would say that what burned the fire in me was to take something from zero to 60. The ability to create, the ability to visualize a, you know, future change in outcome. And, and I, I, when I reflect back on my consulting career, when I was thrown in chaos, when I was thrown at the most impossible challenges, and when I was able to conquer those, that I found the most fulfilling in my experience. Um, and so that, I think, is what I took away, right? So uh, solving tough, complex, big, impossible problems. 
A hundred percent. But yeah, there's so much you, I, I know so many folks who started in consulting and moved through entrepreneurship, you know, because you can deal with pressure, the communication skills, the analytical skills, there's so much you can leverage. What to you has stood out the most in terms of where you are now, but what you actually have leveraged from the consulting days? I would say one of the biggest things beyond what you said, what you, you know, is process orientation. Right. At the end of the day, you need to, when you're building a business, when you're building an institution, you need to have a, a fair and equitable method of doing things that includes everyone in the process and yet is consistent and, and replicable. And right. so when we're building, you know, when you're starting out early, everything is chaotic, right? In the startup universe, everything is do what it takes, get it done, get it done yesterday. But when you're starting to think of building a long-term institution, you need to bring in controls, process, structure, vision that can be implemented on a daily basis. And that's something that Accenture definitely taught me that in the smallest of things, bring in process and in the most complex of things, bring in process. Very interesting. Now, did you did you use that kind of process mindset uh, towards kind of starting the idea of Kinara? Like, I'm curious where where did that where did that idea foster from? And, and I, I kind of know the answer, but I want you to to go through it. Sure, sure. Uh, look, I grew up in a middle class family in in Mumbai. This is pre liberalization in India, um, and and at a time when. Uh, entrepreneurs, small business entrepreneurs, or just entrepreneurs in general, had hard time getting access to capital, working capital, growth capital, any kind of capital. Uh, my family is uh, somewhat split personality. My dad's side of the family are all professionals, doctors, scientists, professors. And my mom's side of the family were the small business entrepreneurs, the hustlers, including my mom. So that was the backdrop I came to. You know, I came to the U.S. for my undergrad. I started this exciting consulting career. And India went through a liberalization, uh, opening the doors, opening the economy in the early 90s. Uh, when I came through in the mid, you know, mid 2000s, I noticed that while it's been a decade of liberalization, access to capital remained a challenge for the small business entrepreneur. And uh, it reminded me in a conscious, subconscious way of my own childhood and how big a problem it was then and how, how much of a struggle it was to move yourself up in, mm -hmm. in the business uh, expansion stages. And, and that's what motivated me to try to see what I could do to solve this problem. So, so that's, you know, and, and like a good consulting backdrop career that I've had, a good way to solve a tough problem is step by step, right? You start figuring out where the problem is, how big is it? What right. are the, you know, what are the big rocks? What are the small rocks? How do you parse them? And how do you, you know, fix or, uh, or, or solve for the bigger pieces first? And in doing that, hopefully, you can build in a, a solution that is long lasting. So in India, there are 60 million small businesses today. And these 60 million small business entrepreneurs employ over 100 million people that are at the bottom of the pyramid. And yet less than 10% of these 60 million uh, entrepreneurs have access to capital to grow their business. That is now in, in the year you know, 2021. So we have a fundamental gap. Uh, the, the flip side of, his, of this is in spite of this gap, these 60 million small businesses 
drive 45% of the GDP of the country. Mm. And so the manufacturing output, the export, every bit of the, the running economy is, is driven by uh, small businesses everywhere in the world and certainly in India. And, and so this gap is big. The problem is, is over $400, $500 billion in, according to the World Bank, in uh, credit access and credit gap. And the ability to change or move people up is so tremendous. The ability to impact lives is so tremendous by doing something about this problem. And so when when I you know when I saw that and I, I was really quite motivated to pack up my life and move move to Bangalore to do something about it. And that was nearly ten years ago. So wow. Today today we are you know we have done sixty thousand loans over two hundred and fifty million. Uh, dispersed uh, of uh, loan capital um, and having impacted, you know, um, several, I mean, 60, we have created 75, 75,000 new jobs in the bottom of the pyramid and impacted over a million lives. So that's the, that's the power of what we can do. And there's so much more to be done. Of course, of course. And it seems like just even in, in the sort of uh, tip of that sphere, like it seems like such an audacious problem to, to try and solve as an entrepreneur it's not like you're building you know a small social networking app or like this is a it has a, it has magnitude to it you know as a problem and so curious again like when you're looking at that process how did you not let that deter you in the beginning days of launching Kinara? yeah uh, look the the problem is massive and and in and as a non-banking financial institution, you're also highly regulated right. by the central bank, so by the Reserve Bank of India. So you're in a regulated market in a very complex environment, trying to uh, trying to create a new solution, right? So we give uh, collateral-free loans to small businesses, which is um, difficult to do, right? Because there is there is a risk element to that, and doing it, it with with small businesses that are largely informal in their transactions and um, are, are, are essentially vernacular speaking. So, you know, you can't just say, let me give them an app and it will work. Exactly. It, it requires doorstep service. It requires being able to integrate with how they operate. And so the, with all of this complexity, if you start thinking about all of this, I don't think any entrepreneur would start any business anywhere in the world. You really just start with uh, with some level of uh, gusto and bravado and, and, and also just say, look, let me just solve this problem today. Let me just focus on this problem. Once I get past this stage, I'll think of the next one, right? And so that allows you to stage through and, and hopefully there are enough successes along the way that you are able to keep moving your mission forward to what you want to build. Yeah, and I, I want to get to that in a second. I'm just curious because I know you said on the risk management side. Now, I remember paying attention to one of the videos that you that you were interviewed on. Uh, and mm-hmm. it was really interesting because obviously when you look at India, we have a massive piece of land, but so diverse mm-hmm. internally, right? Different dialects, right. Uh, right. different individuals, different backgrounds, cultures, etc. And so you actually have uh, physical colleagues going to the plants or the businesses or the manufacturing firms themselves right. and extending that credit to the business, not to the individual level. So I think that's a key point that stood out to me at least. Absolutely, absolutely true. 
uh, we are assessing business for their capacity to pay. We may uh, assess the borrower for their willingness to pay. Uh, but at the end of the day, we are extending a business loan to the business and, and in, in it's for a business purpose. So we are very clear that the loan must be utilized for growing the business and not for you know, personal expenses. And so those things are tied into our process that um, so allowing us to assess the business and also validate the usage of the, of, of the funds when we are extending those funds out to those small businesses. And what are some, I'm, I'm sure like maybe people are wondering, like, what are some of those factors that you would look for? Let's say I'm a business owner. We have a conversation for the first time. What are some, some of those maybe green flags, not to look at the negative side, maybe just the, the positives <laughs> that you're like, you know what, George seems to be a good guy. The business seems to be fundamentally doing well, rel- uh, irrelevant of which industry it's in. And so here's the microfinancing of six to $7,000. Yes. Um, so in, uh, it's very hard to unpack, but I'm going to try, right? Because today we have built an auto decisioning model that uh, that gives a loan decision, a loan approval. Right. And that model takes into account over a hundred different variables to make that decision. A lot of the variables are fed in by the visual observations of our field teams, as well as the, the availability of verifiable information. But Here are some top level things. We are looking for some level of verifiable income. Are we seeing some income coming through your bank accounts? You know, can we we build something around as to what that income levels are? We're looking for what sector, subsector, and what we know of the margins that those sectors draw in a particular geography. We are assessing if you have filed for uh, for for essentially goods and services taxes as a business and what we can extrapolate from that as to what your income levels could be. And then we are bolting on all the other demographic information, geographic information, uh, our own experience of working in that segment, in that sector, in that geography with our team in terms of capacity and, and collection efficiency of the particular loans we have dispersed to derive essentially a very simplified, let's assume this is your verifiable income. I know what other loans you may or may not have, maybe personal loans, a bike loan or a fridge loan, and therefore here is your net income. And I want to build some room between the net income and what the the EMI, the monthly payment to Kinara is, which gives me the you know the volatility factor of your business built into my risk assessment, and that's my derived uh, loan amount that I would approve for somebody like like you if we met. <laughs> yeah, no, it makes it makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm assuming obviously you're using like software or AI in the background, big data, just to come to these at a scalable rate, right? You can't have someone right. really check these. Uh, I mean, it's it's it would be. That's right, way. exactly, and it's a blended model because our field teams are are digitizing some information on the ground and also they're adding proxy information, right? We are looking for, you know, how many machines you have running, how many employees are there, what, you know, what what does the business setup look like? Because these are things you you just cannot um, override in the Indian context. And then the, the big data AI is making the loan decision, but those two things have to come together for a good decision, of, for a good portfolio to come together as well. Yeah, because it's kind of like an in-person audit at the same time. Like you're verifying with the eye, you know. Yes, uh, certainly. Exactly. I think that that would be important. Um, but also the language differences that I heard you talk about previously, and you know, just kind of communicating maybe the value proposition, how this works, the process in the background. 
I think that's equally important. Yes, and while our you know our customers today, uh, if I can you know give a sort of a profile view of them, they're in mm-hmm. in their thirties. Sixty five percent of them are do not have graduate degrees, uh, so there is a lack of uh, of interaction, digital interaction that has been in the picture, it is changing ever so slowly. And we are seeing customers more and more, like 90% of our customers today have smartphones, but there is a trust deficit still uh, of online systems, of technology, of giving your you know, information, your banking information, or your identification information completely online to a nameless, faceless app. But giving that same information to somebody who's at your doorstep, who speaks your language, who explains the product is much, much more easier to integrate. And then the tech, the tech does the same thing in decisioning. It's just that it fronts it, front ends it with a human touch. Right, right. And also the tech probably removes the emotional component in making that decision, right? It's not Completely. Like, right. It's just based on objective truths, I guess, that determine a score and whether you pass or not, really. That's right. Whether you pass or not. And if, you know, once, if you pass, then what is the right amount of loan? Because you may want $10,000, but our algorithms, you know, things that your, your best case scenario for your ability to pay is 6,000. And what we have recognized is entrepreneurs that by definition optimistic, (laughs) and yet look at the environment we're living in today. There are so many different uh, shocks to the system that as a business, as a lending business, we have to be prudent and build some room. And why do you think, you know, maybe just like going into this, this whole venture, uh, why do you think this was a problem to begin with? And certainly it's not, I, I would say, unique to India, right? Like in the U.S., a, a massive percentage of the population can't even get a, a credit line of like $2,000, $3,000. So they can't even pay off, you know, an, an emergency expense. I don't know exactly the percentage, but it's an overwhelming one to say the least. And so um, that being said, what has surprised you the most as to why that was the case to begin with? Yeah, I just I just think that uh, our banking system is fundamentally broken. Right. Mm. And maybe this is true worldwide. Uh, It it assumes a certain level of formalization, documentation, a certain level of form filling. And only then do you, uh, do you get access to money. And we know this all together too well, right? If you have money, you can get more money. <laughs> but uh, but the, the truth of the matter is, and in India, by the way, they, the bankers will then just bolt on a property collateral requirement. Give me your land or property collateral. And that mitigates my risk. And you still have to fill out these 40 page forms and, and send a file of, uh, of all kinds of uh, stuff. But at least it mitigates my risk. Now, more than, you know, two thirds of this country do not necessarily own mortgageable property. So you continue to build further and further barriers, the forms, you know, the form barrier, the, the, you know, formalization barrier, the audit barrier, and, you know, the property barrier. And it just makes it so much more difficult for a small business owner to try and even attempt it most of the time that um, they just, they resort to, you know, essentially getting money from money lenders or, um, or in India, they will often just pledge their gold, their family gold to get 
capital and then use that for working capital for the business. Uh, and, and it just creates a, 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 you know, asymmetry in the system that prevents people from really building larger businesses. Mm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and then just transitioning quickly to the leadership side. Uh, so curious, like when, when was that tipping point for you? When did you really start feeling like, wow, we have something that, that's working. We're seeing some strides of success like this. Actually, I can see momentum in this. I can feel it. When was that like for you? Yeah, uh, you know, I would say that probably came in in our fourth year. And for, for building out Kinara Capital, one of the things that I was singularly focused on besides the right product design for the customer was the path to profitability. And in the fourth year, when we hit that, it was, very, it was literally small amount of profit, but we got there. We, we, we made, then I knew we had a winning solution. We had figured out operating expense. We had figured out pricing. We had figured out product. We had figured out market. At that point, we had roughly about you know, a few thousand customers. So we had, we had enough here that felt like this could really scale well if we can keep the foundations, you know, foundation right in terms of building from here. Gotcha, gotcha. This will be our sixth year of profitability. So we seem to have wow. at least gotten the fundamentals down. <laughs> and that's not an easy metric. Uh, I mean, a lot of people can generate revenue, but getting the, the bottom line is what's uh, obviously the more important, I would say. Um, and then as you reflect, like now, I think Canara is ranked at roughly 64 out of 500 top high growth companies in Asia Pacific. And this is by the Financial Times. When you think of this kind of stat, um, what what advice, what maybe lessons learned can you share with aspiring specifically female founders that look mm -hmm. to you for inspiration, whether it is in India or globally? Well, I would say that, um, you know, the entrepreneur's journey is difficult for anyone who starts and it's definitely that much more difficult for a female founder. I think the stats against female founders are atrocious, right? 3% of capital goes to female founders. So we know the stats yeah. don't, don't favor female founders. Um, the, the advice I would have is if you are clear why you're doing it and you're truly passionate about what you're going after, then the only thing left is to be persistent. You have to keep at it and you have to build extra time. You have to know that it's going to take a little longer and you have to fight a little harder and keep at it, right? It's, it's, it's not only for your idea, but to continue to break this log jam that we have that, you know, female founders don't make good business investments, right? So if we keep at it, then we can prove that we are at the table and then hopefully others will follow. A hundred percent. And, and, and even just like, you know, looking at, at India specific CEOs and leaders, I mean, globally, you see them at the helm of Microsoft, PepsiCo, you know, Google, does that, does that inspire you as well? Like when you see uh, peers within your country lead some of the, the global massive tech brands and, and aside from tech as well, in the case of PepsiCo, like, is that, do you draw inspiration from that? And, and do you look to, to one day, you know, inspire others th through those kinds of stories or case studies? 
Yeah, I mean, look, for all of us can, you know, find inspiration in many places. And, and to be, you know, to be honest, I'm really glad that the Indian diaspora has, has reached quite uh, a lot of success globally in different large scale brand ventures. Uh, for me, the ultimate is meeting a customer who tells me that, you know, when he started, he didn't know if he was going to survive the year. And we came along and Kinara was able to fund that loan. And now instead of making $300 a month, his income has jumped to $500 a month. And that has changed his family, his life, his children's trajectory in terms of access to education and access to healthcare. That's inspirational to me as well. Right. So that's, uh, that's my that's my view of both sides of the coin. Well, it's always awesome also to see where like you move to the US, come back to, to India and, and, and start a venture that really has an impact, like a, both a social, environmental, but also an economic impact. I think if you have those on top of this is your own venture, I think it just it's like the, the best sweetener that you can add, you know, to a story. Like what better way to do that in yeah. your home country, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's no and, feeling like and- uh, yes. And, and, you know, and I urge all of these leaders around the world to figure out how to bring the money back to India to do more of it. Right. We have still today uh, over 300 million people that live under two dollars a day in poverty. I hope hopefully better days to come. I want to do just rapid questions. We're almost uh, running out of time. But um, I know I think Maya Angelou is uh, one of your favorite, I believe, authors, if I'm not mistaken. I know that you have a quote on your wall. I believe it's in the <laughs> office, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't know if you want to share that quote. I think it would probably be your, your favorite quote, but I don't want to assume. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, it, you know, she talks about uh, about living life, right? And it's not it, in doing it with passion, compassion, humor and style. And, you know, it, it's a great way to bring my personality to work and allows me to you know, free myself up and to be my authentic self and, and laugh at things every now and then. A hundred percent. Favorite book? Um, well, I, you know, you can't see it, but right behind me, there's, you know, there's Rare Air, Michael Jordan. We were talking about, you know, yes. the Bulls a little while back. And, uh, and he has really been quite inspirational. That's amazing. I like the, the, the draw to Chicago. Last one for you. I saw in one of those videos, I think it was a day in the life. You were making something with bell peppers. So you hit home to my belly here. I saw, I don't know if it was like couscous. Yes, it was stuffed. It was stuffed red bell peppers. Yes. So I do that a lot with like minced meat. I'm like, now I'm I'm getting hungry. But (laughs) I I was curious, like, what's your favorite? And obviously India is known to have delicious food. I mean, it's it's pretty standard. But what would you say is your favorite thing to eat? Um. Gosh, this is a tougher question than I thought. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, a, a, a beautiful extra virgin olive oil, crusty bread, and a nice glass of wine. If you found this podcast useful, make sure to share it out with your community. And if you haven't already done so, subscribe to the podcast. I'll see you next time.